Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I am your host, Grayson Brolty. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Christoph Kuver, Senior Vice President and General Manager, Core Products, Serens. On today's episode, we discuss the future of conversational AI. We hope you enjoy this episode. Christoph, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Grayson. Pleasure to be here today. It's an honor to have you here today because conversational AI is the future. You're an expert in conversational AI. And to kick things off, I love to know, in, in your opinion, what are some of the major breakthroughs that have occurred in conversational AI over the last decade? As often with technology, it is not a major breakthrough. It's more a combination of many small steps that eventually make the technology work. If you look at conversational AI, it has been around for 20, 25 years. It was doing very simple things and it was not working that well in the beginning. And over time, it became more capable. It started to perform better. And then it got to the point where it was working. What led to that was a combination of uh, advances in computational power. The cars and the processors used to run the conversational AI systems have become a lot more powerful today than they were 20 years ago. Uh, scientific progress. We have a new algorithm, new methods of building those systems, relying on uh, deep learning, relying on uh, machine learning techniques, uh, neural networks that uh, make them much more accurate than they were before. And finally, the last one is the fact that we see a lot more connectivity in vehicles. And that connectivity brings a wealth of data that we can also use to improve the systems. Wow. How often, because of the improved connectivity, is the system updating? Is it updating in real-time learning in real-time, or does it learn in batches? How does that work? There are multiple learning mechanisms with different uh, timeframes. For instance, there is a, if you look at the cloud system, it's updated nightly. Uh, an example would be if you talk about news, there are new items popping up in the news, new places, new names that the system does not know how to pronounce. You may have a new president elected in France, uh, Emmanuel Macron, and nobody knows how to pronounce that name initially. So the system has to learn that. The way it would do it would be by monitoring the new stream, saying, oh, that's a name I don't know about yet, looking for the pronunciation of that name, and then adding it to the system that it knows how to pronounce it. This kind of updates based on the data, and I was using news and names as an example, but it would monitor also music, for instance, uh, new artists. And this would be done typically nightly, once per day. Then what will also happen is learning about you, your personal preferences, your choice. Do you prefer covered parking? Do you prefer free parking? Are you willing to pay extra to, to be closer to your destination? Those preferences that can help the system make recommendations when you ask for a parking nearby, those things will be learned continuously. So there is no fixed cadence for that learning. It's more of a continuous learning as you use the system. And so yeah, and in between, so I was describing a form of learning which is very personal about you and you only. Then I was describing learning, which is about uh, extrinsic things like uh, new uh, music titles, new artists, uh, new names in the news. Uh, and in between, you have what you are co uh, calling the aggregate the, uh, learning. So that's more about figuring out from the data that people start to ask about this in this way. And that's not uh, something the system knows how to do today. We can identify that, identify the gap, and then build the system. And that, that can be a... Uh, 
a bit slower or a bit faster, depending on what we need to learn about people. Some things require a lot more data and may take longer. Some things can be learned from a, a few uh, snapshots of data and can go a lot faster. But you have things that go from instantaneous to a few weeks to a few months for the learning to occur, depending on what we need to learn. When you look at aggregate learning, so you mentioned the president of France, perhaps a news announcer pronounces it one way, the president himself pronounces it another way, another new caster. Do you kind of get all the proper pronunciations together to find out the right way it should be pronounced? Okay, so what we would do in that case if we have to learn two things. If people ask, tell me about uh, Emmanuel Macron, so you need to know about all the way they will pronounce it. They may say Emmanuel Macron, they may say Emmanuel Macron, they may say Macron. So there may be multiple ways people will refer to him. So you need to learn all the way people will actually refer to, to his name. Then when you talk back, there you want to use the correct pronunciation. And, and that's where we are going to use uh, canonical references. You, you have standards for that. And if we don't have a standard for that, we are going to use a, a linguist, experts from the country that will just confirm that what does the right way to pronounce uh, Angela Merkel in Germany or Boris Johnson. Like that was an easy one in the UK. Let's use dialects, for example. In Mexico, it's a different dialect that's spoken than, um, than spoken Spanish in Spain. Do you, or even for Barcelona, for that matter, if we want to go down the technical path, do you adapt the system based on the local dialect? And then you can, in French Morocco, speaks a little bit of different dialect than, say, in Paris, for example. So we will adapt uh, to variations, but we're going still to stick to some, basically, we're going to look at local variation of the language. And dialect has a specific meaning in linguistics. A dialect is more like uh, Scots. Uh, it's not English spoken with a Scottish accent. It's Scots, which is a very dialectal thing. Or you may have uh, Appalachian, the dialect of the Appalachian mountains in the, in the US, which would be uh, barely English. So, so those would be dialects we normally don't do because they are essentially vanishing those days. Dialects are going away. People, uh, due to television and the fact that they go to school and relocate, tend to, to speak more and more a canonical language, but they still keep an accent. People from California don't have the same accent as people in Texas uh, or on the East Coast. So that's something the system will, will have been taught to recognize those different accents, as well as the variations. So there is a Mexican-Spanish accent versus a, a Castellano-Spanish accent as spoken in Spain. Even in Spain, if you're in Andalusia in the south or if you're in, uh, uh, in Galicia in the north, you're going to have a very different way of speaking the same language, different accent. Like I'm speaking English, but with a French accent. So you need to learn to recognize those accents and also special words. Between UK English and US English, you're going to talk about windshield, windscreen, about trunk or boot. And this is also something we'll, we're going to include, that knowledge that, uh, well, people will refer to something with different names, or sometimes you use the same word to refer to different things. Uh, I'm from Belgium. I'm going to refer to breakfast with a word that would be uh, déjeuner, which literally breakfast, whereas a French person would say little breakfast, petit déjeuner. And, and that's the difference between our two flavors of French that, that uh, the system would learn and be able to, to use in the future. That's interesting. You, you highlight UK English versus American English. The flat. Okay, that, that's your home. And in America, flats commonly referred to as an apartment. I like that you're breaking that down. 
you're understanding dialects, you're understanding languages, you're gathering all this data. If there's a musician trending, so the system knows you're leveraging data. As you look to the future, will you start leveraging data from the sensors and the cameras that are in and around the car, for instance, if you're driving around New York City and you ask the car, where is the Empire State Building? The Empire State Building is, is four blocks south and it was created by blah, 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 blah. Do you start to pull that type of data in? Yeah, we see that as uh, one of the big next steps for voice assistant and commercial AI is the fact that today the systems are in a way uh, a lot like calling your, your assistant on the phone. They, they only hear your voice and that's it, or even worse. They are almost like texting your your uh, voice assistant your with a request. They understand the the words and they respond to you. But what they miss today is a lot of the contextual information. So if I am asking a question like "What's that building on the left?" If I'm on the phone, you don't know where I am. You are not able to answer that question as my assistant. So you need the assistant needs to be aware of the location of the car what direction you're driving, because left or right would be a different position depending on your direction of driving, need to understand what's on the map around you, and need to understand the question, what's that building on the left? And based on that, the system can then look up the the car location, the map, identify the, the big building on the left. Maybe from that uh, location of the building, look up information about it on Wikipedia, uh, and tell you, oh, that building on the left is the, the famous uh, castle of uh, XYZ that was founded, uh, that was built in the 16th century by uh, the kings of Bavaria. That's fascinating. And, and I, I mentioned Empire State Building before the Empire State Building. It was the original home of the Waldorf Astoria before it moved to its current home. There's all this interesting, I'm, a, I'm fascinated with history, but it'd be interesting. You're driving around New York City, you're driving around Paris or London to learn of of all this history that's happened there. And that seems that's capable of what you're describing. Is this all coming together with the technical breakthroughs, which is Saren's co-pilot system? Is that how this is all coming together? Yeah, it, it's uh, it's already in some cars today from from Mercedes. Uh, that, that it's not yet in North America, but in Germany, uh, that capability uh, has been uh, launched a few months ago by Mercedes uh, working together with us. And this is uh, one piece of the copilot. I mean, the, the, the vision for the copilot is that it should move from the pure voice assistant to a copilot, some like, like a virtual copilot sitting next to you that is aware of what you say, but also what uh, your, your nonverbal communication, your body posture, your gestures. Uh, if you say, what's that building? Well, you can catch my gaze and the direction I'm looking into to, to, to look at what's in that direction on the map. So you also want the co-pilot to be aware of the, the sensor information from the car. Where is the car located? What is the situation today? If I'm asking something like uh, saying I'm cold, well, I need to know what the current temperature is in the vehicle to understand what that means. If it's already pretty cold in the vehicle, then I may want a clarification. But if it's currently, let's say, uh, 85 degrees, I can probably set the airco on and target uh, something in the 70s. So you need to have that sensor information and the wealth of data that is becoming available from cars is growing. So the co-pilot should be aware of that and use that as contextual information. The copilot should also be like a good copilot, proactive. 
what I mean by that is that if you look at what you have today, most systems are reactive. They started as voice control, one way to push buttons by voice, if you want. Then they became more like voice assistant. You could ask them questions and they would try to answer you. But you had to initiate the interaction. Proactive systems would take the initiative. Uh, an example is something we have done recently with an OEM in China, where in China, uh, gas price is regulated. That means that you know that the gas price will go up on Saturday. Say it's Friday afternoon, you're driving back home, your, uh, uh, your tank is half empty. You know that the fuel, the, the gas price will go up on Saturday morning. You can suggest, hey, we are passing by a, a gas station with good prices. Price will go up tomorrow. Would you like to stop for a refill? And, and, and that's the kind of, of capabilities where the, the co-pilot would be uh, aware of the car, the status of the tank. If the tank is full, don't recommend to stop the refill. You'll not be able to put any gas in it. So you need to know that the tank is, let's say, half empty. You need to know that what the gas price trends are. And combining all of those external information from the from the cloud, from the internet, together with the car sensor specific, you can then make a proposal to the driver. Then when you engage the driver, you have to do it smartly. Uh, like uh, if we're humans, we, we use body language, we use contextual awareness to decide when am I going to talk to my driver? If I see that it's a dangerous crossroad and they are really uh, paying attention, no, it's not a good time to ask them about gas price. But if you're uh, stuck in a traffic jam and not moving, hey, you have free time. No, it's maybe a time to make that proposal. So you need to have that awareness and uh, sensing where the what is the right moment to talk to the driver. For that, you can voice alone is not enough. You need to have uh, typically uh, other modalities, so multimodal information about the driver. And cameras are coming to the car. OEMs are putting cameras in the car for driver monitoring. The goal is to detect if they are paying attention in autonomous driving mode and are ready to take over, or also if they are not getting drowsy or sleepy. But the same camera can tell you, is the driver available right now? Is the driver, does the driver look stressed? And something that is very important to us, if we start to be proactive, Everybody remembers Clippy, the Microsoft paperclip that was so irritating that everybody turned it off and Microsoft eventually removed it. Well, you don't want to be the next Clippy. So if you start to be proactive, closing the loop with a driver is important. Some people love to be entertained and engaged. Some people, probably more like me, prefer to be left alone at the steering wheel. And uh, the system should get a sense of that, which is the nonverbal language. If I look annoyed, the, the first three times you talk to me about recommendation, I know I should not do it again. On the emotional standpoint, I gave you some various scenarios during the day. Say in the morning, you're driving the kids to school, so perhaps you like you listen to kids' music, and then after you drop the kids off, you immediately switch to news. And then if you go in the grocery store or somewhere in the afternoon, you like to listen to classic rock. Is that something the system will know because there's an established pattern of the vehicle and how it's being driven that's already preset and programmed? Yeah, so you can learn the music preference. So you can learn it either because user will be requesting it, play some rock. So you can notice the pattern that uh, every morning on the way to work, you listen to rock, whereas on your or to news, let's say, 
listen to the news and on the way back home in the evening, listen to, to classic rock uh, stations. So that, that's a pattern, the pr a preference pattern that the system can learn. And that preference can be uh, linked to, uh, to, to, to uh, location or time data. So in the way we're going to learn preferences, we're going to factor in locations. In location X, you tend to prefer say this type of parking. In location Z, you prefer this other type of parking. Uh, and uh, in terms of music, we can learn your preferences depending on the time of the day. And possibly even in that case, have it, have it uh, take, into, take into account the fact that, uh, well, days are organized by weeks for most people. So that uh, Saturday morning may not be the same as a Monday morning. That's so the systems it's learning, it's, it's working. And I want to go back to the gas and give an, an example in America. You're able to pull, pull data, Brent crude, West Texas, uh, intermarry crude and refinery data. Perhaps a refinery goes offline historically X amount of days later, gas prices in your area spike. Is that something you can alert the driver in three days? We predict that gas prices will go up, say, 50 cents a gallon. We recommend filling up before then. We, we can, to the extent that we are, we are not able to predict the stock market. So we're not going to make a, a stock pick uh, predictions and then recommend to the driver, hey, uh, the certain stock is about to pop. Would you like to purchase some right now? But uh, we, we can use that. Something we've been looking at. There are some uh, indicators that are heavily correlated with gas price and that we can use indeed to make prediction, even if the gas price is not regulated. You're creating value for the driver. You're learning the emotions. You're not the you're the annoying clippy. Beep, 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 beep. You're, you're creating meaningful value. So that's on, let's call it the, the personally owned passenger vehicles. And on the other side of the house, you're working in the ride-sharing market. You're powering the conversational AI system, the SAIC mobility robo-taxi vehicles. What will that experience be like for the passengers? And say, I, I go in the vehicle, um, say at 9 a.m. Eastern, and you, I'm sorry, 9 a.m., and you go in the vehicle at 11 a.m., same vehicle. We don't know which other. How will it know? Okay, Christoph likes this experience, Grayson likes this experience. I'm going to, to make a short aside about privacy. We, we care a lot about privacy. So, and there is always a trade off between privacy and quality of service. If I don't know who you are and I cannot retain any information about you, then I cannot personalize the service. But if you grant me the authorization to keep some information about you, and most people do typically, then we can uh, preserve your profile. So if you have your profile and you, you take a right share at a certain point in time, during that right share, you request, uh, let's say, classic rock. Let's stick to, to my music example of earlier. Next time you take a right share, we know it's you. Typically, you're going to have an app. There will be a way of identifying you as a rideshare user. And we can tie that uh, rideshare ID with that music preference that was expressed before and reuse that. So uh, a bit like we have a portable profile today. If you connect to Facebook on your MacBook or on your iPhone, you get the same, the same Facebook account. So the, the, this information can be linked to your, uh, to your profile and uh, move with you as you go from, from one right share to the next. Now, we can even probably uh, automate that a bit using biometric technology. We can make it as seamless as possible while being mindful of the privacy aspects. 
we are not going to build a database of all the faces, all the faces of all the US drivers and use that to identify them when they, they get into Robotaxi, obviously. But with the permission of people, uh, we can validate their identity. And if they've authorized it, we can then link that to their profile that may, that will contain their preferences. We'll use camera technology, Bluetooth technology to detect the passengers, or what technology used to de detect the passengers in the vehicle? Today, it's uh, essentially, there, there are multiple techniques used by OEMs and by us. You're, you can rely on Bluetooth to identify which phone is in the vehicle. So if there's only one, that, that's an option because phones are personal devices. You typically carry it with you. You don't loan it to someone. The second thing you can do is uh, if people select a profile, many cars offer the option of creating profiles and selecting them. The final one, which has been done by Mercedes also, is to, to use biometrics to identify who the person is. So if you, if I say something like, uh, set my favorite radio station, you can recognize my voice among the voices of previous users and then use that to identify what you're requesting from the voice in voice biometric. If you have a, a camera and face identification, you can similarly do the same. So in that case, it's identification because we know that there are maybe four, five, six potential drivers of the vehicle, you and your, your kids, say. Uh, and within that group, we have learned to recognize them and we can then use that to, to, to identify who is in the driver's seat this time. Stay on the Mercedes, the, the voice biometrics example. Can the system detect stress in the voice where the system says something might not be right here? There could be a potential medical emergency. Do they detect that? Not yet. So today's system are, there has been a lot of research on emotion detection, uh, stress detection, intoxication detection based on the voice. And, uh, but none of those are present in cars today. We have several research projects with OEMs that are in that direction. The idea is uh, to detect uh, indeed stress, but also to use that to adapt the voice, the conversational AI, the interaction, the way a, a human would do it. If I notice that you're stressed, I may adopt a, uh, a soothing tone. On the contrary, if I notice that you're sleepy, I may adopt a more energetic tone to, to pep you up. <laughs> <laughs> it goes beep beep wake up let's go wake up <laughs> you're you're making a better version i believe it was the um uh mid-2000s mercedes that had the coffee cup that would come on the steering wheel would give you that little re uh, uh topic to to try and wake you up yeah so we, and, and we can and that's part of this co-pilot vision that the system should realize that you that you have some non-verbal information about you about your emotional state about your physical state and that information that I would, as a human, notice has to be taken into account and the system has to, to then react accordingly. And this is not yet uh, in any production car today, but this is something that is on the, the radar of several OEMs and we're working with them on that for the, let's say, the, the near future is in a couple of years. Because there's no doubt every major OE, OEM is going to have to put conversational AI. And I want to emphasize, we bold, underline, it has to work. Because the consumer will get extremely frustrated. What's that building? Well, I don't know. Say that again. Or I'd like to order a domino. Say that again. If it, if it works, then you're going to have massive consumer acceptance. You're going to have massive consumer adoption. 
And as the system, the co-pilot system, it evolves, it, it gets smarter, how will the system change? Will, just, will you add on new features, perhaps a, a commerce platform in the future? Or how do you see the, the platform evolving as it gets smarter? The, the, the platform is a, a technology enabler. And once you have the capability to interact with the driver, to detect the emotions, the nonverbal language and the context, you can start to create a lot more new opportunities. Something that is already done today is the ability to reserve restaurant tables. You can look look up for a restaurant near your destination that has been around for a few years, but now you can connect to Open Table or the Fork or Resi and use and, and via that actually reserve a table at that restaurant that you've identified near your destination. And that also creates some new and interesting business models that can generate new revenue streams for the OEMs. If you know how Open Table works, let's take take Open Table. The the restaurant has to pay a fee for any reservation made through Open Table. So they pay a fee to Open Table. You as a user don't pay, but the restaurant has to pay Open Table. And Open Table, if you're the channel through which that reservation has come to them, will share part of that fee with you. So you can have a setup in which Open Table takes a part of the fee, the OEM where the person located takes part of the fee and the service provider and the vehicle would be us in that case would also take a part of the fee. So, and this is something that, that, that adds value for the user and at the same time allows the OEM and all the players in the ecosystem to, to generate some incremental revenue. And it's that recurring revenue that the investors on Wall Street want to see. So the OEMs are going to be more inclined to adapt the technology because it creates a new revenue stream. Another thing, as you mentioned, is that the technology is a technology enabler. We'll eventually be able to connect to your smart home. It knows, okay, Christoph is three miles away from the home. Start lowering the air conditioning, unlock the doors. Will there be integration such as that that will come out in the future? It, it raises a lot of questions about safety once you start to do, talk about door unlocking. So I'm going to talk about things a bit safer, like uh, to, let's say that you're leaving in the morning, you're moving away, the garage door is closing, the system, uh, you may say, oh, did I leave the lights on? Yes, the system can connect your home, uh, identify the lights are still on and can say, okay, turn the lights off. That's easy. But a smarter system would notice that you're leaving in the morning, you're driving away, the lights are on. You may want to say, hey, uh, I just noticed that the lights are still on. Was that intentional? And if it wasn't, maybe you prefer to leave, to leave the lights on to give the impression somebody's at home because you just left for a holiday. But uh, the system can notice that, again, proactively ask you about it, and you can confirm, no, no, oh, sorry, I forgot, turn the lights off, or no, no, that was intentional, leave them on. And, and you can use that also as a learning mechanism to see um, if you leave the lights on every day on purpose at home, then I don't want to remind you every day that you've left the lights on. You, you should notice, and that was my first example about Clippy, about not being intrusive. You need to learn when to do it. But this integration in the car is something that allows the system to be smarter in the way it will integrate. An example would be, I'm driving towards home, I'm approaching my garage entrance, I'm slowing down, probably means I'm going to enter the garage so I can start opening it, I can drive in it directly. But if I'm just passing in front of home on my way to pick up the kids from school, I'm not slowing down, I shouldn't start opening the garage door. 
So th 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 there are things that uh, a car would know there and should know that can make the interaction with the home systems better and more intuitive. A copilot would do that. Think of being a copilot sitting next to you that has a remote for your garage door. They would know if you plan to stop or if you plan to continue. And then, only then, they would push the button to open the garage door. And th that's the kind of things you may want to, to, to figure in. An interesting thing about uh, there, about this, is also if you allow a garage door opening, if some of you, you want to avoid the short by hijacking of your home. Because if you, if, if from your car, you're at, a, you're at a traffic light a mile from home, somebody comes to your window and say, open the door. You don't want your garage door to start opening for, an act for somebody to then get in. Uh, so, so at that level, what uh, the system needs to do is to use, say, bi voice biometric technology to make sure it's you in the car giving the command, that command. And uh, we can also, from the, the audio signature, identify if the voice was produced in the vehicle or outside of it, which is also an interesting aspect. Because if it's coming uh, from the outside, it's obviously not you in the car on the way home asking to open the door. You're eliminating stress on one aspect. On the other aspect, you're increasing safety. Are there microphones on the outside of the car? How are you detecting that, that outside voice? So the, the way it would work today is from the inside microphone, when the voice transmits inside through the windows and, uh, and the roof and uh, the doors, uh, it gets attenuated. So the, the, the frequency signature of the voice is different. And that attenuation pattern compared to the, the plain audio from your mouth to the microphone close by is sufficient to, to identify the sound come from inside or outside. So we have done a bit of research on that. Cars do start to have external microphones. It, it's a bit of a challenge because the microphone that would be outside has to withstand the weather conditions. And that's one of the big challenges of external microphones, but uh, they are coming because autonomous vehicles will have to be uh, able to listen. If you want a real autonomous vehicle, level four, level five, you need to be aware of, uh, say, the, the beeper of a truck backing up or uh, the bell uh, of a, a bicycle ringing a bell or a, a car honking or an emergency vehicle that uh, is sounding its, uh, its siren. And for that, external microphones will be a, a lot more effective than internal ones that are a bit insulated from, from the outside. We have several OEMs that are we know are working on that. Uh, and we're also working with them to, once you put those microphones, mainly probably for autonomous vehicle use cases, we can leverage them for additional convenience features, comfort features. If I'm approaching from the car, uh, why can I, can I not say open the trunk? I can wave my uh, my foot under the, the bumper to open the trunk. Some cars are used to do that, but I should be able to say open the trunk. Why not? Uh, if I had a co-driver in the car, they would do that for me. To do that, you need to recognize the command coming from the outside and you need to confirm it's you shouting that command. That's where, again, the voice biometric story I was mentioning before comes into play. What you've described is game changing for the way that a vehicle is going to work from a, that's called a passenger experience or a driver experience. You've had the technological breakthroughs and I, lo I love how you said it. A lot of small little breakthroughs led to a larger breakthrough. 
What, early on, what did the team see in the market or in the technology said, now is the time to develop Copala because we can have a really positive impact and grow our market share? I think for me, it's really uh, the fact that uh, connectivity and the access to data in the cars, cars are becoming really computer systems on wheels. Cars used to be a collection of modules that the OEMs would put together that were very loosely connected with each other. Now they are really, uh, take a Tesla, it's almost like, like a PC with two wheels added to it. And uh, that, that's something that, that makes a lot more information about the vehicle available to work from. Cameras are coming to cars. There are regulations in California on safety. Also in the next generation of European NCAP test that will uh, grant you additional active safety stars if you have driver monitoring. That will eventually lead to cameras being present in almost all vehicles. And when those cameras are in, they will be useful for additional things. Additional driver information will be available that can be combined. And uh, the last one is uh, connectivity, as I was mentioning. Data networks get faster. So 10 years ago, when telematics came to cars, or 15 years ago, you had a, a 2.5G modem in the vehicle. You could barely send the GPS coordinates uh, every minute or so to the to the what what would today be called the cloud. It wasn't called the cloud back then. Today, with a 5G connection that is coming to cars, 4G today, but 5G is coming. You can almost stream uh, not yet video, but a lot of data can be streamed to the cloud, and, and that will enable a lot more opportunities in the future. Yeah, well, you describe and throughout this conversation, Sarens, in my humble opinion, is developing the future. You're taking the next logical step of, of where the technology goes. And somebody like me, it's inspirational. And what you look at around inspiration, Sarens is a partner with the SAE Foundation. Collectively, you're working together to inspire the next generation of innovators. Why is inspiring the next generation of innovators so important to Sarens? I think it's critical that if what I was describing uh, is a combination of a lot of art science. So th there is a lot of uh, engineering, software engineering, mathematics, physics, that is necessary to, to build those technologies I was describing. At the same time, you have a, a strong uh, man-machine, human-machine interaction dimension. So it's, it's both art science, but with a heavy focus on the interaction with the, the users. And this requires people with a, a strong education in, in STEM that are interested in solving those problems. There's a shortage of good engineers and a shortage of engineers overall. Uh, working together with the SAE, we hope that we can help promote that, make people realize that the automotive industry is not some old-fashioned, uh, greasy pursuit on the manufacturing floor. It's, it's extremely high-tech. Uh, it puts together a lot of engineering and, and even uh, human science aspects together. And I've been in this field for 25 years now. I found it fascinating 25 years ago, and I find it even more fascinating today. It's a fascinating field, and I love the analogy with the Greece. It, I call the automotive business the mobility business. You take some a company like Serence, you're building an incredible technology that will will go into vehicles. You're engineering the software. You're you're, you're doing all the the deep learning, the neural networks. You're not using a ratchet. You're using your brain, and, and that takes engineering skills. And putting this conversation into context, what is the future of conversational AI? 
I think that uh, it will be about continuously making it better. In the sense, there are still some things that don't work that well. Less things that don't work that well, but there are still a few. So that's one of the future. The other one is extending it beyond voice. Today, Concussion uh, AI is very voice-centric, as I was describing in the beginning. It's to make it more multi-sensor, more multi-modality, video, gesture, body language, non-verbal elements. Multi-sensor is about integrating more information about the vehicle. Also multi-seat, it's about all the occupants of the vehicle, not just the driver, not just the, the driver controlling things, but uh, giving a better user experience to everybody in the vehicle. So, and uh, finally, it's about coming up with new use cases, new things that uh, are not have not been possible, but will become possible in the future thanks to that technology. Some of the use cases we discussed earlier today, some we don't know about, but they will be there. And if you had asked uh, Steve Jobs in uh, when he launched the, the first iPhone, could you describe all the potential future applications that will come to it? He would not have been able to to forecast that, but he knew that there would be a lot of those nice and cool apps coming. And I think we're at that stage here where the technology is getting to the point where it's sufficiently good to enable a lot of different things. It's moving beyond voice to integrate those other modalities, sensors, and focusing on a broader set of occupants and users of the vehicle. And that opens up a lot of new use cases. In the future, what your technology you're developing will become common standard in every vehicle around the world because consumers will demand it. What do you mean my vehicle doesn't know this? What do you mean my vehicle doesn't know this? What do you mean I can't order a coffee from talking to you? It's going to become a common standard that's driven by consumers. And Christoph, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, uh, thank you so much for, for shedding the incredible light on conversational AI again. What would you like the listeners to take away with them today? I think as we're saying towards the end that uh, conversational AI is there to is here today, but it keeps improving. It keeps opening up new opportunities. It's a fascinating field and uh, we need more people to use it. We need more people to build it. So I hope that some of uh, your listeners will become users and some will become builders of this technology in the future and join us for that. I like that. Use the technology, build the technology, because today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, and the future is Saren's. Christoph, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Present, it's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as we speak with Will Hudson, Vice President of Product at QuantumScape. He'll share the company's mission to transition away from legacy energy sources for electric vehicles with solid-state lithium metal battery technology. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.